0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. In this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you a talk from our archives. The following talk was recorded at our pastoral refreshment conference in 2012, and is a talk given by the late Peter Maiden on Psalm 27.
1: Hey now, well, let's return for the last time, week weekly least, to Psalm 27, and I'd like to uh, read the psalm again to you. Thank you very much indeed for the privilege of being part of this conference. I, I'm a real introvert by nature. Uh, they're driving up a, uh, a driver like that so at the beginning of a conference is never easy for me so um, thank you very much for making me it's been great to talk to you between sessions uh, sharing your lives and that's been extremely encouraging uh, I'll be asked to share uh, an illustration that uh, I, I shared in a, in a seminar that I attended at the conference here on uh, enjoying God's after God's creation. Uh, I'm a city guy, I don't know anything about gardens at all, um, so I thought I should come to this seminar on enjoying God's creation. But a couple of years ago, in our little garden, there was a plant that never, ever flowered. It'd been there for 10, 15 years, never flowered. So I took the, the, the hammer out, basically, the large hammer, and I tried to beat it to death. But I didn't quite kill it, and in the middle of the trauma that I'd been telling you we were going through, to my total surprise, this plant flowered for the first time, and it was an absolutely beautiful flower. And I was so excited, I was like a little child actually, that I took, uh, uh, I took a piece of the plant away with me, and for a long as not live I think it was about two or three weeks, Every survey I went to, I, I showed up this flowering plant and I told the story. And sometimes when you really get in the most big part, that's when the flower, uh, fully comes, pretty seen. So I was asked to share that. Just hopefully it might be at some significance to some in our uh, meeting this morning. Let's read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. The psalm of two parts, not two psalms. No, a very real record of a victorious struggle. A man who, in the face of great trials, seeks the face of God for his sustenance, his encouragement, and his direction. If you look at all three of these psalms, which I think you can read together, 26, 27, and 28, you'll see that all three end filled with hope. David struggles through and settles finally on the certainty of his hope. Look at verse 12 of 26. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. And here in Psalm 27, verse 13, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. These two statements express David's hope while he's still in the middle of the battle. He's looking forward to a day when the battle will cease and he'll be able to pray to the Lord with others and experience even more of his goodness. In Psalm 28, it seems these hopes are now reality. Paul 6, praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song I praise him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Derek Hidner, however, comments... That if we take the senses here exactly, or strictly, there is still actually element of future hope <laughs> in David's words. Derek Kidmer says, it should read, if you stick strictly to the tenses, my heart trusts in him, and I shall be helped. And my heart exalted, and with my song I shall praise him. So it's this theme that I want us to concentrate on in this last session together. Living today in the certainty of our hope. In the heat of the practice that David is experiencing, I think if you look at the end of the psalm, you can see him relying on two things and committing to one thing. So we'll take those two things in the order in which they come in the psalm. And first of all, we find David relying on the mercy and the love of God. We've already noticed his commitment to integrity. Uh, Psalm 26 and verse 1 I've led a blameless life. Test me, Lord. Try me. Examine my heart and my mind. But it's not his integrity on which he relies. Verse 7 of 27, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Not because I deserve to be heard. No, be merciful to me and answer me. Only by grace can we enter. We sang together around the table yesterday evening. You can see in the verses which follow that even though David is seeking this life of high integrity, he knows that not to the mercy of God, he's lost. Verse nine. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. God, my savior. I wonder as he writes, if he's in the process of witnessing, even if he writing, the tragedy of Saul? Is he desperate that what he sees happening in Saul does not happen to him? And does he recognize that without the mercy of God it's inevitable? Remember God's words to Samuel. 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. How long will you mourn over Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? I wonder if it's in that context. That we need to read David's words in verses 8 and 9. Don't hide your face from me. Don't reject me. Saul's example should be a warning to all of us in leadership, just as much as it appears to have been a warning for David. Saul, a man who had everything going for him, born into a family of influence, Uh, 1 Samuel 9 verse 1 tells us that Kish, his father, was a man of sending. He was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth. And Saul had great natural abilities. He was a head taller than anyone else in the land. But of course, more than all of that, he was God's chosen. And the anointing of God came on Saul. As the Lord said to Samuel, this is the man... I spoke to you about, he will govern my people, and Samuel takes the bottle of olive oil. And he pours it on Saul's head, and he kisses him. And he says, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? With that divine anointing, we're also told that at that same time, God changed the heart of Saul. You see, Saul. Exhibit them, decisive leadership skills. Read through 1 Samuel uh, 10 and 11 when you have time. You'll see de- decisive, powerful leadership as Saul raises an army to fight the Ammonites. And yet you see merciful leadership at the same time The people are suggesting to Saul that his critics should be destroyed. But you see Saul's merciful leadership at that point, and it's all looking so good. Now you turn to the last page of the story of Saul. we slain on the battlefield, his armor displayed in the temple of the asteroids, His body fastens to the wall of the temple in Bashan. How is it that so many servants of God who start out so well? And so sadly. As you read the last words of Saul, as you read the story of Saul, the last words of Psalm 27 come again into focus for me. Wait for the Lord. In one Samuel thirteen, he's in a very uh, vulnerable position. Saul's in a very vulnerable position. There's a huge army. It's described as like the sand on the seashore arrayed against him. And you recall that Saul had been instructed by Samuel to wait in Gilgal. The seven days he'd been told to wait passed. And the people are beginning to scatter. You can't deny it's a crisis moment for Saul. And he says, bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings immediately claiming for himself the priestly office. And then he's quite unready to rush into battle. He doesn't stop and send anyone to look for Samuel. There's no record of him seeking God's face, inquiring after God's will. And as you follow the story further, you find that Saul is always quicker to fabricate excuses to explain why he doesn't do that. Rather, than simply or there. He seems to have become incapable of genuine repentance. When you return to 1 Samuel 13, you read, As soon as Saul had finished offering the sacrifices, Samuel came. Only he'd waited. And then we read, Saul went out to greet him, or in other translations put it, Saul went out to bless Samuel. Matthew, Henry comments, he appeals to boast of what he's done rather than repent of it. He greets Samuel as his brother-sacrificer, as he now thinks of himself as the complete priest. And when Samuel inquires, what have you done? Saul immediately turns to excuse and blame. When I saw that the men were scattering, And that you didn't come at the set time. I think David is desperate as he watches this unravel before him. That the disaster he's watching in Saul's life doesn't happen to him. And he knows that for the mercy of God, he'll go the same way. Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite. Desperate failure moments in David's life, which could so quickly have led to exactly the same result as we see in Saul. But these failures ultimately bring David face to face with God in repentance. Seeking again his mercy, Saul's failures seem to harden him against God. David's failures seem to bring him face to face with God. So here in this psalm, we see David relying on the mercy of God. Not his integrity, not his reputation, not his leadership. now the mercy of God. And as we get towards the end of these three days together, I just wonder, is there anyone struggling with sin and failure? But if there is, I just want you to be 100% assured of the constant flow of the river of God's mercy. It's a very precious time for me last night around the Lord's head just to think again of the shed blood of our Savior. And whatever our situation today, that blood still flows. So David relies on the mercy of God, and then secondly, he relies on the love of God. It's a brilliant statement in verse 10, isn't it? Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. In normal circumstances, the very last people you would expect to forsake you would be your parents. Their love you would expect to be the strongest, the most enduring But compared to God's love for us, the most wonderful human love is as nothing. And it's just worth pausing to think about that statement. Just to recall some of the heroic deeds in history which have been motivated by parental love. Or maybe just to consider your own love for your children if you're a parent. What you would not do for your children. And then having meditated on that for a moment to realize that God's love for you, God's love for me is far more than the most amazing example of parental love you can ever recall. In Isaiah 49, 15, that's probably already come to your mind. Can a mother forget? Her baby at the breast, and have no compassion on the child she has born, though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Commenting on this verse, Alec Mthier writes the following, talking to yourself, we used to say, is the first sign of madness. Far from it. Rather, it's an important sign of Christian common sense. I suppose, of course, that depends on what you actually say <laughs> for yourself. all what is it in another way? When he says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And yes. the mind is only renewed by thinking of new and renewing topics. If we talk to ourselves about worldly things, Paul says, we'll develop a worldly mind. If we focus on things above, we'll develop a heavenly mind, Colossians 3, verse 12. So we can cultivate the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. Romans 8, verse 6. Every thought we entertain disposes our mind in one direction or another. So it matters what we talk to ourselves about. And in particular, what do we say to ourselves when things just seem to be going from bad to worse? What do we talk to ourselves about then? Despondency is taking over. What do we speak to ourselves? The natural tendency, it often seems, to be strong beyond resistance. Is to retire hurt. And just to moan to yourself, how terrible, how unfair life is. You see, go away and chew the fat. Go that way, and this fondness will feed on itself. It will deepen, it will darken you by the minute. And Isaiah says to us here, don't do that. Feed your mind on the promises of God. Tell yourself all that God has pledged to do. Hold on to His word. And the promise here is that God will never forsake you. Even that moment might come when your parents will forsake you, but your father will never forsake you. The Lord's therapy is to bring us, by means of his word, as we ponder and understand it, to bring us out of depression, out of the downcast face, into the burning heart again. So Jesus walks with those disciples as they move towards Emmaus. They're downcast, they're depressed, and so gently and beautifully our Savior moves alongside, and he begins to open the scriptures for them. And before long, their downcast face is gone. Their hearts are burning again. So in the heat of the crisis, Davis, David, first of all, reminds himself of the ever flowing river of God's mercy and the immeasurable extent of his love. That's the first thing on which David relies. And I hope we're all going to go from these three days together, relying on those two things. The ever-flowing wither of God's mercy. The immeasurable extent of his love. Secondly, let's look at the commitment David makes in the crisis. He commits through it all, verse 11, to maintain his integrity. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Spurgeon comments that what David is asking for here is a path which is open, honest, straightforward, in opposition to the way of cunning, which is intricate, torturous, and dangerous that Echidna writes it's a moral term that David uses, implying what it writes or states when the nearest slip can be exploited. Calvin, commenting on this verse, says, He who thus desires to commit himself to the safeguard and protection of God must first renounce crafty and wicked devices. Now, we need to live this life of integrity, supremely, of course, because this life lived in integrity glorifies God. But we must also live this life, according to this verse, because of our oppressors, or because of our enemies. To quote Sturgeon again, they will catch us if they can. But the way of manifestation Simple honesty is safe from their rage. He said it's wonderful to observe how honest simplicity baffles and outwits the craftiness of wickedness. Truth is with them, honesty is the best policy. And as you can see in verse 12, false witnesses were rising up against David. They were spouting malicious accusations. You can probably sort of imagine the scenario. There's a sense of intrigue. There's devious planning going on. And the temptation is always, isn't it, to answer like with like. You begin to be less monstrous, to a fool. You may not lie because, of course, you're only evangelical, but your statements are not plain any longer. They possibly border on deception. David wants nothing of it. He wants to walk a plain, straightforward path. He wants God to take him by the hand and lead him along that path because he knows that such an attitude will glorify God, and I'm sure. He also believes that truth will ultimately triumph. There may be severe pain before the triumph is realized, but truth will triumph. God's most faithful servants can fall into this trap of the integrity slip. Think of Abraham twice presenting his wife Sarah as his sister. For no other reason than his own personal safety. For Abraham, of course, this was a half-truth. Sarah was the daughter of his father, but not of his mother. Abraham is scheming. He is choosing not to walk along the straight, plain path. I don't think I need to say any more about this, but I just have to say I have a deep admiration for David at this point. In the crisis, being faced by malicious accusations, intrigue all around him, his prayer is Lord, please lead me along the straight path. Help me to keep it simple. I'm not going to get into politics. Just help me to walk the straight path and take my hand, because I can't do this myself. Take my hand and lead me along that path. So David, in the crisis, number one, he relied on the mercy and love of God. Number two, he commits himself throughout to live the life of integrity. Look, thirdly and finally, at the second thing he relied upon. And that, as we've seen, is the promise of God, the certainty of the future. As I said, all of these three psalms end in a hope. And I love the end of this 27th psalm. I find it so encouraging. I remain confident. These struggles, these trials, they haven't dented my confidence. I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait for the Lord. Amplified Bible, waits. And hope for and expect the Lord be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. Derek Kidner again, he comments, David is holding on, it seems, in naked faith. There seems to be no sign of this sign for David of God's intervention. But still, his confidence in God and his ultimate intervention remains strong. There's some discussion as to how the 13th verse should be translated. Kidna writes that the Hebrew, verse 14, begins with an unrelated unless. So the authorized version puts it like this. I had sainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord. So if it is authentic, Kidna proposes the meaning might be, unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord, I would never have survived. Either way, he continues, it doesn't materially affect the sense. Whichever way, David has no more to go on at this point than the fact that God is worth waiting for. And says Kidna, that's enough for him. And again, I wonder, as we get to the close of these three days, if someone here is standing where David stood. There's is an issue in your life or in your ministry, and you've been crying out to God, but there's no sign of his answer. And I speak of this because of recent personal experience of that. Crying out to God, and no sign of his intervention. And it's naked faith that's called for. The discipline not to panic, as Elijah did, but to wait, to hold, and to expect. The Lord. So we hold on in naked faith to the reality of what we were thinking about last night, the finished work of Christ. We hold on to the reality of his bodily resurrection. We hold on to the reality of his promise. We turn to reign. Of course, David actually expects to see something in his lifetime. He expects to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, that can't be the assurance for everyone in the time of trial. Calvin believed that David's assurance was based on God's promise that one of his descendants would be placed on the throne. And Calvin believed that uh, David uh, understood that he would see that day. Psalm 132, the Lord swore an oath to David, assured oath that he will not revoke one of your descendants I will place On your throne. But what if we don't see those promises fulfilled in our lifetime? Joseph believed so completely God's promise, God's promise that his people would return to the promised land from their Egyptian captivity. They were told in Hebrews 11 that when his end was near, He spoke about this exodus, which was still to take place, of course, this exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, and he gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Don't bury me here. God's word will come to pass. Later, of course, in Hebrews 11, we have that thrilling passage from verse 32. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. who through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, they quashed the fury of the plains. They escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle and ravaged foreign armies. women received back their dead, raised to life again. They saw the victory. They saw the promise of God fulfilled in their lifetime, and then, without it seems missing a beat, the writer continues, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. No sign of the promise is fulfilled in their lifetime, and yet the writer says they were all commended. For their faith. And when you are trusting In the trial. Holding on. In naked faith. And there appears to be no sign of God's intervention. What do you do? Exactly what David did. We're to wait. For the Lord. Not to rush to apply. Our own solutions to the problem. Done that so often. But I hope I've learned my lesson. But I probably haven't. Not to rush to apply my own solutions to the problem. Not to begin to manipulate a situation. But to wait. To be strong. To take heart. And to wait for the law. Listen to God speaking to his people Israel in Isaiah too. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The holy one of Israel in repentance and in rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you will have none of this. You said Noah will flee on horses. therefore, you will flee. You said we'll ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away until you're left like a flagstaff on a mountain top, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Sarah cannot do it. She can't wait for the fulfillment of the promise of a child. Abraham, sweet with my Egyptian servant Hagar. And Ishmael is born. As God's people, we can always wait because there's always hope, constant hope, because of the victory, which again, we were concentrating on last night, the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that one of the great Christian distinctives should be that we are a people of hope. But as cuts of the 21st century, we've got a very significant problem. Our Western culture, particularly our Western culture, concentrates almost entirely on the moment, on the now. The only future interest, it seems, for many people, is our pensioner. And the government, of course, is rather concerned we're not sufficiently interested in that. The preoccupation is with the now. And this, I believe, has massively impacted the culture of our churches. The prosperity gospel is the extreme example of that. But don't you find that many, many Christians get disappointed with God if things don't go well for them in the now? We expect a basically peaceful existence, a reasonable lifestyle. Robert health most of the time, and if that doesn't happen, it triggers faith questions for many, many Christians. One well, writer put it like this, the knowledge and the experience of God for so many today in the Western world is so weak. The desires for the pleasures of the present are so strong. But many today find it impossible to imagine that life with God in the world to come could be incomparably better than what we hope to experience in this world. I think it's clearly reflected in modern worship. Song after song is written celebrating the presence of Jesus in our lives here and now, and that's great, that's important, but how often? You find yourself singing about the future, future realities the glory of heaven, the return of our Savior. How else it was? Just take five more minutes. By moving, as I did yesterday, from David to Paul, and to a scripture which has sustained me probably as much as any other in the last five years or so. Talk about difficult days. When Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, He was really going through it. Those he describes as the super apostles, they'd come down from Jerusalem, and they appeared to be carrying everything before them in their campaign to win back the Corinthians to their law-centered message. They didn't want calls, Christ-centered, Messiah-centered message. They wanted to get them back to their law-centered message. And they were accusing Paul of all manner of things, or giving it to to uh, they said, You changed your travel plan. He said you were going to come, you didn't come. So, if we can't trust in travel plans, I can we trust the gospel that you bring him to? They accuse him of mishandling money. They said, Oh, he writes a good letter, doesn't he? He writes a strong letter. But you know what? He's, really, he's a very unimpressive character. And he's preaching. He can't preach to save himself. That's the kind of criticism that these super apostles were bringing against Paul. No wonder he writes in chapter 4, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. As one paraphrase puts it, we're knocked down, but we're not knocked out. How do you carry on in such circumstances? How do you minister on in such circumstances. Well, just look at 2 Corinthians 4, 13. It is written, says Paul, and he's quoting Psalm 116, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we also have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. So amid all his difficulties, Paul's spirit of faith endures. For the basis of the faith, verse 14, because we know... That the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Paul's eyes, Paul's hopes are firmly fixed on a day, a day when he knows that not only he will stand in the presence of Jesus, but his Corinthian converts will stand with him, and converts from many other cities that he visited will stand with him. And that future that drives Paul forward in the present. But his struggles, they're certainly taking their toll. How could he says, how could verse 16, we're wasting away? The persecutions, the stress, the demanding lifestyle is taking its toll on Paul's health. Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That sort of Paul, in the middle of this immense struggle, experiencing daily renewal, no doubt it is his tenth time daily in the presence of Jesus, was a terrific inspiration to me over the last six months. And it all led to this final great crescendo of the chapter, surely one of the great encouragement statements of scripture. Therefore, we do not lose heart. These huge struggles, which he actually describes as the light or slight and momentary when compared with the eternal glory ahead. So, verse 18. Wow, I love this verse. So, we fix our eyes, not on what we see, whether what we see is good. Whether what we see is bad or whether it's indifferent. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen, whether it's good or bad, is always temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Timothy Savage puts it, it's partly because Paul believes in a future resurrection of the dead that he's presently willing to carry about in his body the dying of Jesus. It's because he trusts in a future exaltation that he submits now to the condition of a slave. It's because he looks forward to a future heaven life that he's willing to die daily. It's because he anticipates reigning with Christ in the future that he can speak boldly in the present. We've had some interesting quotes from Martin Luther at this conference. But one of Martin's quotes that I think about over and over again, is that simple quote that only two days of my diary, today and that day. I said there aren't many modern songs about the future, but Nathan Hellingham have written a brewing song. I just wish it was easier to sing. (laughs) There is a day that all creation is waiting for, a day of freedom, liberation for this earth. And on that day, when the Lord shall come to meet his bride, we'll see him. And in an instant we'll be shame, The tempest sound, the dead will be raised. By his power, never to perish again. Once, only flesh now, clothed in immortality, dead. Because been swallowed up in the victory. So lift your eyes to the things as yet unseen. That will remain now for all eternity. Though trouble's hard, don't try and deny it. Troubles hard, but it's only momentary. And it's achieving our future glory. We'll meet him in the air and then we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. All pain and sorrow will cease says God. He himself wipes every tear. Come our eyes. All pain and sorrow will cease. And we'll be with him forever. And in his glory, we'll share the certainty of our hope. One day, we'll see our victorious, lovely Savior. And we'll be like him. We'll be with him forever. This future certainly sustains us, motivates in the present. Brothers and sisters, his love and his mercy is guarantee the river will flow, the love is immeasurable, its promises 100% sure, even if you don't see them fulfilled in this lifetime. So let's live, minister in faith and in integrity for the sole purpose of glory for our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Just a moment to allow God's word to settle in our minds and in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for my experience of your river of mercy, a immeasurable extent of your love for me. Oh Lord, I do pray that my brothers and sisters will bathe in that river and enjoy the warmth of the embrace of your love. Lord, thank you for the certainty of your promises. Some of them being fulfilled before our very eyes. Others we will wait, maybe not even see them in our lifetime, but Lord, we know that every promise of God is yes, it's our name, in Christ Jesus. So even if it's an naked face, Lord, we hold on, we hold on to you, Lord Jesus, our Savior and our conquering and returning King, and we worship you together in your own name.
0: Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders. Or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.